1: Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Paula Newton sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here's what you need to know right now. President Trump faces a second whistleblower over his call with Ukraine's president. Full-core press, Chinese companies suspend ties with the Houston Rockets basketball team after the GM tweeted support for Hong Kong protesters. And cutting back big time, Unilever pledges to reduce its plastic by half. It's Monday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. Glad you could make it with us. Guys, this was a real wild week of trading here on Wall Street last week. I don't have to remind you, do I? And the madness may not be over yet as U.S.-China trade talks get underway once again in Washington. Again, though, in Washington, we have whistleblower mania, and that could also impact sentiment. I know we've been saying that it hasn't been, but hold on, buckle up, it still could. And, of course, I know you don't want me to say the words, but Brexit... Brexit talks, again, will be in focus. We'll see if there's any clarity into this week. Now, as we await the opening bell, it is looking like a lower open across the board for stocks. But I can tell you, futures were pointing to a much worse open. Remember, after the third losing week in a row for the Dow and the S&P, some people are trying to see if there's still a bump there that could happen, especially on the heels of those trade talks. Futures are falling, of course, because... Uh, We are now hearing that China will walk away from a trade deal if it's forced to make any key structural reforms. The latest economic numbers are sending mixed signals about how trade is impacting that U.S. growth. September jobs numbers show that the job market is holding up pretty well, actually, which hasn't really surprised people. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said Friday that the economy is, in his words, still in a good place. But you know, last week's lackluster readings in the manufacturing and services sectors rattled investors for sure. The latest Atlanta Fed estimate shows GDP growth is slowing to less than 2% for that third quarter, and that is significant. Now, a further report out today points to weak economic growth next year, and we will have more on that in just a moment. But first, we want to get right to our main driver, and that is the latest on this impeachment probe. Now, more detail and more information is emerging relating to President Trump's attempts to lean on a foreign leader for political gain. Now, a second whistleblower has now come forward with firsthand knowledge of that call between President Trump and the leader of Ukraine. And 90, I will say that number again, 90 former national security officials have released a letter in support of that first Whistleblower Suzanne Malvo joins me now from Capitol Hill. Suzanne, you've been up and down those hallways getting reaction in the last few days. What's been the reaction now to a second whistleblower who says he has firsthand information? Well, Paula, people
2: don't really know what kind of information that, that is. Only uh, some information from the House Democrats saying that it actually corroborates the first whistleblower's story. But this is of great concern to Republicans. And therefore, you've got a lot of these Republican uh, senators as well as members of the House. We're on recess, of course. But those you do try to reach, they are running, running away from the hills here. And so it's going to be a lot more difficult to run when they go back uh, from this recess, when they come back tomorrow. Uh, That is one group. On the other hand, you've got uh, President Trump, who is uh, lashing out at Speaker Pelosi and the chair of the Intelligence Committee, uh, Schiff, uh, turning the tables on them, saying, I've done nothing wrong, that they are the ones who are guilty of high crimes and misdemeanors and should be impeached. Um, But when you take a look and you listen to those senators, those Republicans who are willing to speak out, very interesting. One of them, Senator Rubio, dismissing all of uh, President Trump's statements as simply a joke, uh, not to be taken seriously, uh, something to rile up the media. Then you have others uh, like Senator Ron Johnson, who's the chair. Of the homeland security committee and he says he doesn't trust anything that the cia or the fbi or the u.s intelligence community puts out and so those are just some of the ways that they're responding and then you do have a few republicans who are very critical of the president at this time senator mitt romney calling the president's actions appalling you also have other moderates like senator collins and a ben sass they also are expressing some reservations and displeasure about what the president has done and what they've learned already And Paula, one of the uh, strategies, if you will, coming from a Fox News commentator in an op-ed, Tucker Carlson, he says, look, the president's actions are indefensible, but not impeachable. And that might be the kind of roadmap, the kind of language that Republicans might use to at least express some displeasure with what they have seen so far out of the House Democrats' impeachment inquiry, but not go so far as to condemn
1: the president and to vote for articles of impeachment. Yeah, which which would be a shrewd political strategy, which will get to those Republicans and independents who, you know, if they check their guts, they know what the president did was probably not right. And yet, on the other hand, they're saying it's not impeachable. I get that. Suzanne, going forward here, we have some more hearings right there on Capitol Hill. Uh, How much more information do you expect we'll be able to get this week? These are critical
2: witnesses, and the fact that they're even going to be here is, is very important because uh, some of the other State Department officials are not showing up, have decided that they're, they're not going to cooperate because of what the Secretary of State Pompeo has said. They don't have time or they need to be lawyered up with their own State Department with, uh, lawyers. Uh, but what we're going to see tomorrow, uh, the U.S. Ambassador to the United States, Um, rather to the European Union, uh, very important, Ambassador Sunland. he is somebody who in these discussions, in these text messages, uh, was a key part in the negotiations, in the talks leading up to uh, President Trump and the Ukrainian president to have a meeting or a discussion, and whether or not that was quid pro quo. He is somebody who said, no, hey, wait a minute, when he was called out by a U.S. diplomat, is this a quid pro quo? And he said, no, absolutely not. Then abruptly suggested that they stop using texts and that they talk to each other directly by phone. So if people are gonna wanna get to the bottom of that. What does that mean? What does he know? And then Friday, it'll be the uh, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, she was recalled abruptly in May. What was that about? We know that the president has been openly critical of her as well as his private attorney, Rudy Giuliani. So she will be important as well to kind of flesh out what she knows in terms of the approach to Ukraine. What did the president want, demand, and was there in fact some sort of exchange?
1: to them there in Capitol Hill thanks Uh, a lot of details there still to go through and you wonder what voters are making of it we will continue to track of course what investors are trying to make uh, of it here at the New York Stock Exchange meantime President Trump's goal of three percent GDP growth is looking increasingly out of reach a new report shows the US economy slowing further in 2020 and that of course comes smack dab in the middle of an election campaign the good news for the president it doesn't seem like this is actually going to turn into a recession. Claire Sebastian joins me now. And the consensus, Claire, tells us that the U.S. will slow down, right, but may be able to avert that recession, um, likely because of the, the consumer, right, the U.S. consumer.
3: Right. So far, the consumer seems to be uh, going strong. Paul, but as you say, that 3% growth that the president has touted is not on the horizon. If you ask the National Association of Business Economics and their survey of chief economists and strategists, at big companies. They say that next year growth will slow to about 1.8%, which will be the first time it's dipped below 2% since 2016. And if you look uh, at the odds of a recession, uh, as you say, it's it's not imminent, according to these economists, about 7% chance this year. But by the middle of 2021, uh, that chance, in their eyes, rises to about 69%. So it's not imminent, but it's certainly not off the table. There you have it there. You see it dramatically rising uh, over time. So the slowdown, they see it, is taking hold, and then the question, Paula, of why the biggest key risk to the downside for the economy, according to these, uh, this survey, is trade policy that was the uh, biggest risk according to 53 percent of respondents to the survey and it's interesting if you look at the other risks that they point to slowing growth market volatility geopolitical uh, event of some sort all of those risks i would say exacerbated by trade policy itself so really this is taking hold and i think uh, one thing you can say is that if if trade policy were to be sorted out if there were to be uh, some kind of deal the picture here would change markedly yeah, what's interesting
1: here, Claire, Claire, is how we dovetail all of this, right? So we're talking about impeachment. We're talking about a trade deal about with China. Uh, this morning, we hear that perhaps China is not likely uh, to come up with a comprehensive deal. They probably don't feel that they need to do that right now. How will all of this uh, affect trade going forward? Because, you know, the argument some people say it'll make Donald Trump, the whole impeachment thing and the problem with the slowdown in the economy, will make him more likely to strike a deal with china other people say less
3: well i mean it was just a couple of weeks ago paula that the president said you know he wanted a complete deal with china that now that unnerved some investors because that suggests that he's going for something really ambitious which could take a while and that some kind of interim deal is off the table obviously a lot has changed in the last couple of weeks, not least the impeachment inquiry, but we've also had uh, some worrying news on the economy. We had a survey of manufacturing activity, which is is at its lowest point since 2009. Uh, That's affecting key Trump constituents, don't forget, uh, in states that have high levels of manufacturing jobs, where we're also seeing jobs lost. Uh, And there was a slightly disappointing, not complete disaster, but slightly disappointing jobs report. So certainly he's under pressure from the economy. The White House standing firm, Peter Navarro, Uh, on CNN on Friday, saying that it's the Fed and the strong dollar that's to blame for the manufacturing slowdown. But certainly it's not outside the realms of possibility that China is watching all of this, watching the pressure that the president is under and realizing that it has more leverage in this, so maybe less willing to come with big compromises, Paula. Yeah, and usually
1: probably taking bets on who the president will be uh, in 2020. Claire Sebastian there, who continues to watch those numbers very closely, appreciate it. Meantime, British banking group HSBC is set to slash up to 10,000 jobs. Now, that's according to the Financial Times. It says the move is part of an ambitious cost-cutting plan under the lender's interim CEO, Matt. Egan joins us, and the question I have for you, Matt, is that you can see this is kind of tinkering, and yet the HSBC has been very clear, they need to transform the way they do business. Is this the beginning of this, a very small part of this? How are they framing it?
4: Yeah, no, that's a good question, Paula, I mean, it's another painful day for European Bank employees, um, HSBC CEO uh, Noel Quinn, he is apparently on this quest to really, really cut costs quite significantly. The FT is reporting up to 10,000 jobs are at risk, and this would be on top of the 4,700 job cuts that were announced in August when HSBC made the CEO change. Now we should caution that um, this has not been confirmed yet. This is an FT report. HSBC is declining to comment, and although. 10,000 is obviously a large number. HSBC is a massive bank. So this would represent about 4% of the bank's total headcount of about 238,000 people. But, you know, Paul, I do think there are still three big takeaways here. One, HSBC is clearly hurting right now from a combination of factors, including slow economic growth in europe and elsewhere it's also hurting from low interest rates and then all these geopolitical uncertainties as well including a brexit and the unrest in hong kong and hsbc is not alone here right and barclays and um, we've seen SockGen and most notably Deutsche Bank also announced large job cuts. Um, you know, it's also clear that HSBC is serious about trying to uh, really cut costs. The FT reported that the board actually pushed out the former CEO in part because he was not serious enough about cutting costs. And Paula, the, the last point is that you know, no one is really safe from these moves uh, because the FT is reporting that high paying jobs are actually the ones being targeted uh, by HSBC in this latest round of cost cuts.
3: Mm,
1: uh, Obviously, looking at the value of those jobs at this point and what they add to the bottom line, I have to ask you, Matt, we've been talking a lot about lower interest rates, but also in places like Germany, negative interest rates. How is that impacting the whole financial sector, including the
4: HSBC? Paul, I think it's clear that these really unusual, um, extreme monetary policy moves that we've seen in Europe and Japan and elsewhere, um, they have unintended consequences. And one of them is that it really does hurt banks, right? Uh, th- these banks are now dealing with uh, near zero rates. In some cases, negative interest rates. We saw the ECB go further into negative territory um, and the Bank of Japan talking about doing the same thing. The Federal Reserve has dialed back rates. And that's a That's a big deal because it actually eats into bank lending profits. And so now the banks are under pressure to come up with ways to cut costs. And I think that, you know, given all these technological innovations, um, it may be easier and easier for them to actually find ways to cut costs um, by investing in automation and artificial intelligence. Um, So I do think that this is a trend that we're going to have to keep an eye on. And we'll hear more from uh, the big U.S. banks in the coming weeks about what they're seeing, and what moves they have to cut costs as well.
1: Yeah, it is a sector that hasn't gotten much love, uh, especially from investors recently. Maddie, again, thank you for that. Appreciate it. Now, several Chinese businesses are not playing ball with the NBA's Houston Rockets. It follows the team general manager tweeting his support, his support for Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests. This has caused quite a controversy in China. China's top state broadcaster says it will stop airing Rockets games on television altogether. Our David Culver from Beijing has been following all of this. You really cannot make up the intensity of their reaction, both in the United States and in China,
5: on this. Oh, Paula, no question. This has gotten really messy here. Everything from what we're seeing from state sponsored media. And on online, social media and state sponsored media, government backed papers, they're coming down really harsh against the team and against the NBA saying that they need to take harsher punishment against the GM. And on social media, we're hearing folks say that people should boycott the Raptors. China's passion for basketball can be seen in a neighborly game of pickup. When he's not shooting hoops with his friends in Beijing, 15-year-old Eric Chu is closely following the NBA. Toronto Raptors.
4: Yeah.
5: The Toronto Raptors? Yeah. They're your Costa, Yeah, they win champions. But a team that's no longer on his preferred watch list, the Houston Rockets, because of a now-deleted tweet sent out Friday by team general manager Daryl Morey. The Rockets' GM tweeting a photo that read, Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong. Referring to the months-long democracy protests underway in Hong Kong, protests that have both embarrassed and angered China's government. Over the weekend, Maury's tweet unleashed a strong response in mainland China. The Chinese Basketball Association severing ties with the Rockets. CCTV, the Chinese state-run broadcaster, no longer planning to air upcoming games. And the Chinese tech giant Tencent suspending its deal to live stream Rockets games. The reaction led to an apology by Mori, tweeting in part, I have always appreciated the significant support our Chinese fans and sponsors have provided, and I would hope that those who are upset will know that offending or misunderstanding them was not my intention. CNN was in Tokyo as the Rockets hit the court Monday, practicing ahead of their preseason game against the Lakers. Rockets guard James Harden echoing his GM's apology. You know, we love China. We love, you know,
6: playing
7: there. Uh, I know for for both of us individually, we go there, you know, once or twice a year. Uh, They show us the most support and love. So, you know, we appreciate them as a fan base.
5: The NBA acknowledging Maury's tweet deeply offended many in China and called it regrettable. But that has U.S. lawmakers on both sides upset. Republican Senator Ted Cruz tweeting, Human rights shouldn't be for sale and the NBA shouldn't be assisting Chinese communist censorship. Democratic Congressman Tom Malinowski called the NBA's response shameful. Back on the streets of Beijing, Eric and his friends trying to see past the off-court drama. Does it make you think differently about the Rockets?
8: Just okay. I didn't change my opinion. I still like Harden, and uh, but uh, maybe I won't watch them too often.
5: I should clarify what I said at the top of that piece. People here on social media saying that they should boycott the Rockets but naturally they're going to be boycotting the Raptors too for the next game because the Rockets are playing the Raptors in Tokyo and the frustration here is really deep rooted because there's such a love for basketball Paula and that love was really furthered when when Yao Ming joined the Rockets in 2002 and where is Yao today but he's the president of the Chinese Basketball Association the same association that has now severed ties with his former team so it puts him in a really tough position too.
1: I know, really, you can't make it up. This is an extraordinary story that obviously weaves together, sports and politics. We will continue to talk about it throughout the day. Uh, David, I really want to thank you for that report. Appreciate it. And we want to turn now to the stories and making headlines around the world. We stay in Hong Kong, where mass protesters have gathered outside a police station in violation of Friday's emergency law banning face masks. Ban unleashed a weekend of some of the most violent protests there in four months. And believe me, that's saying something. Earlier, hundreds gathered in Hong Kong shopping malls Monday for sit-in protests. In a major change, meantime, in U.S. foreign policy, American troops are pulling out of northern Syria. A U.S. official says they will not defend the Kurds left behind there. They're the same Kurdish forces who fought alongside the Americans as they battled ISIS. Turkey views them as terrorists pullout paves the way for a turkish operation against the kurdish fighters in that border area coming up on first move general motors strike enters its 22nd day and it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon and pulling the lever on plastic the lever commits to cutting its plastic use in half all by 2025 stay with cnn And welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. You know, in the last few weeks, the conventional wisdom has been, well, the impeachment fight will not affect the markets, not so much anymore, especially as we turn to the news that has been breaking uh, in the last 24 hours, that there is a second whistleblower that has now come forward. Uh, Greg Valliere joins me now. He is the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. I mean, Greg, look, we have been hearing from many people that the impeachment will not affect the markets. They're looking more at issues about growth and, of course, the all-important trade equation at what point at what point in time um, does that actually start to affect what we believe will be these markets because you know as we continue to say while trade is an issue of course the Fed is an issue most people have said that politically politically the impeachment will not affect these markets when does that change you know I had noticed you were quoted as saying that the election rate will be about two things uh, either the issues like the economy uh, that Trump will likely do well as long as there's no recession but you also said this election could also be completely about Trump himself and if that's the issue um, that he probably won't do well Greg I don't know if you can hear me now did you hear any of that
8: I don't hear the egg I don't hear Paula that loudly
1: Greg, go for it, just tell us about how you think impeachment may or may not affect the markets.
8: I can't, I can't hear it, I'm sorry.
1: We're gonna pull away from Greg, Greg, hopefully that we can get back to you in a little bit. I want to uh, remind everyone about what's going on with the markets here. We were at, in fact, uh, session lows a few hours ago. Futures don't look that bad right now. Uh, Continuing on here, they continue to say that trade is what is impacting uh, these markets and uh as we continue to look at those futures again not a great day here uh and the dow coming off a two-week losing streak greg uh i hope you can hear me now i think you can we wanted to talk to you about that conventional wisdom that says that impeachment will not affect this market what do you think
8: well so far it hasn't and i'd have to say paula that the two big stories for the markets are the resumption of china trade talks this week and the federal reserve meeting at the end of october at some point Impeachment could affect the markets, but only if there starts to be a change in the outlook for a Senate trial. If it looks like a Senate trial might convict, that's a really big deal. But as long as it looks like a Senate trial won't convict, I think the markets can focus on other things.
1: But how how about that impeachment fight actually uh, changing how Donald Trump begins to negotiate and principally, obviously, with China? I mean, it obviously doesn't make him look like a strong uh, like in a strong bargaining position with China and China continually is really hedging their bets and wondering if he's even going to be president come 2021.
8: Great point. I would say there are two major casualties of the impeachment process, the likelihood of a trial, even if Trump is not ousted. Number one, it means progress on all sorts of other stuff, legislation, China trade deal, that progress could stall. I think the Chinese might think, well, maybe we ought to wait until after the US election before we cut a deal. And number two, I think the other casualty. Is Trump's ratings. I think they're going to continue to slide. I think his re-election prospects are looking less and less likely. And for the financial markets, the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that Elizabeth Warren could win is something the markets have to start focusing on.
1: Yeah. And the markets already have started to weigh in on that. It'll be interesting to see how that develops, especially as her platform develops. Uh, I want to talk to you as well about the Fed. You know, when we saw those job numbers, most people assumed that, look, they were weak enough to mean that the Fed would move in October and in December. What do you think?
8: Well, I don't know if Jay Powell has the votes. It's that simple. When Trump tweets about Powell, Trump overlooks the fact that there's an FOMC that votes on this stuff. And I think several members, Rosengren in Boston, Esther George in Kansas City, are reluctant to waste more ammunition with an economy that has an unemployment rate at 3.5, with an economy that's grown about 2%. So I think some people on the Fed would prefer to wait. Maybe we just get one move between now and the end of the year. I think two moves is maybe a bit too much for many of the Fed governors.
1: Yeah, and you know, some people have argued that, look, uh, the monetary policy won't help that much. And I have to go, but very quickly, which side are you on? Monetary policy can still do a lot here, or is it all about fiscal policy going forward?
8: Fiscal policy is incredibly stimulative. It's going to stay simul- stimulative. If I were voting at the Fed, I'm not. If I were voting at the Fed, I would not cut rates for a while because you don't want to waste your last few bullets with an economy that's still growing and with a market that's close to record highs.
1: Interesting, Greg. Uh, sorry about those audio problems at the sorry. top. I'm glad we got to hear from you. Uh, anyway, Greg, we will continue to watch uh, the markets as this impeachment okay. uh, plays out. I will be right back with the opening bell in just a moment. First move, that was the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange and stocks on all indices now pointing lower. This day could go either way, though. Uh, Many wondering what is up with the U.S.-China trade deal and hoping that there is some kind of a breakthrough. And we begin with that as expected. As you can see, stocks are headed lower. Uh, This is the first full trading week of Q4, in case you were wondering. Traders are cautious ahead of, of course, that U.S.-China trade uh, negotiation that continues later this week. White House Economic Advisor Larry Kudlow said Friday that we might get some positive surprises. The new reports say China is not in a compromising mood and doesn't feel like putting together full structural changes. Meantime, hopes for new Fed rate cuts could lend some support for stocks. Investors see a 77% chance of another Fed cut this month. I wonder if that's being a bit too optimistic. Fed Chair Jay Powell speaks on the economy again tomorrow. And of course, those all-important Fed minutes are out on, win- on Wednesday. So, you know, we've got some news to try and propel this market forward that is not trade-related, although I'm not sure that's going to be any kind of good news either. We want to turn now to our global movers, of course. General Electric trading higher at this moment. The company moves to try and slash his debt, which I don't have to remind you is fairly hefty. It's announcing plans to freeze pensions for 20,000 U.S. employees who have salary benefits. Uber shares, meantime, are up. It follows the stock getting upgraded by Citigroup, which is an interesting move. Analysts say renewed revenue growth could be on the horizon with third quarter earnings set to release next month. And General Motors uh, shares trading lower. This is not a surprise as talks to try and resolve that strike have taken a turn for the worse. That's according to the United Auto Workers Union and they put out a statement. I want to remind you here nearly 50,000 GM employees are on strike. It's in its 22nd day. But that's not all it's impacting, right? It's impacting a lot of other industries, including those all-important parts prizer, uh, suppliers. It's the auto industry's longest work stoppage in more than a decade. Arvin Sierkevich is there in Detroit for us. And, you know, this was really interesting because a lot of people assumed that they were close to a deal. What happened? Hi there Paula. Yeah, these talks
6: really broke down over the weekend and we're really starting to see this cost bear down on these workers, including small businesses here in the area. Economists are warning that as long as this strike continues, we could see a recession in the state of Michigan and it could have serious implications for the 2020 election american dream jesse kelly's life is in boxes we use this as a toy room so now it's a box now it's a room. box holding room yep <laughs> these boxes packed and ready for the dream home she saved for then she went on strike it's devastating it's very hard um you just see your savings depleting every single day a little bit more and more kelly is a single mom raising her <laughs> six-year-old son colton <laughs> living at her mom's house till she can close on her new home. She's one of 50,000 auto workers on strike against GM, surviving on $250 a week. The other day I had to go get a new rim on my car and I remember just that sinking feeling of, this is my whole strike check for this week is the cost of this rim. She also lives in Macomb County, Michigan, critical to President Trump's win in 2016 and helping him flip the state red.
7: A lot of the people in the auto industry are very sensitive about where the economy is. They're very careful to look at which leader is gonna help them maintain their jobs.
6: The auto industry is the anchor of Michigan's economy. For every one auto job, seven others are created and they're hit harder, losing an estimated $400 million in wages since the strike began. Amici's Pizza, down the street from GM's Hamtramck plant, says sales are down 25%.
0: We don't like having to give employees and uh, drivers bad news that they can't work because, you know, we don't have enough business to support all the uh,
8: paychecks. I'm
0: hopeful that they'll find a solution to the problem before it becomes a bigger problem for us than it already
6: is. Michigan has the highest risk of recession in the nation. And this strike could push the Rust Belt state over the edge.
7: There's no way to look at this strike now and not say, somehow this is going to play into how people feel about the economy when they start thinking seriously about the presidential election in 2020.
6: In the 2016 election, Trump campaigned in Michigan more than Hillary Clinton and won, which is why nearly every 2020 candidate has walked the picket line. John Hatline has taken notice.
7: Anytime I can get presidential support here behind the union to help us on our cause, you know, it's fantastic
6: line a Democrat knows many of his fellow picketers are Trump supporters
7: I'm sure after the strike someone may change the position when they're going without a house payment or or without eating that week
6: And one of the reasons why these negotiations broke down over the weekend is because the union is insistent that GM bring some of their product lines back from Mexico to the United States. Paula, this is important because four GM plants are slated to close by the end of 2020, including this one right behind me. So these workers here now waiting to see if this contract gets resolved, also waiting to see if there's going to be a new product they
1: can work on here in 2020, Paula. Yeah, Vanessa, certainly those workers putting everything on the line, looking at their future job prospects. Vanessa, thanks so much. You continue to cover this union dispute uh, for us, and it is an important one to watch. Uh, Meantime, Unilever says it will attempt to half, cut in half all of its plastic consumption that it uses in its projects. And all of his products by 2025. To say this is a tell, tall order is an understatement. Addis Gold joins us now from uh, London. Aras, what, in terms of how they've outlined how, how they're going to do this, and it is quite a timeline, that's still six years, how do we know that it is going to move beyond more than just a PR statement?
9: Well, part of the reason is that unlike some other companies that have pledged sort of to do more recycling to reduce packaging, is that Unilever is putting a number on this. So Unilever, you know, is this big consumer goods company, represents more than 400 of some of the best known brands. This includes brands like Dove and even Marmite uh, and Lux brands, uh, everything from from food to household cleaners. And they say that every year they, they use more than 720,000 tons of of plastic in their packaging. Now, part of their proposals now is that they plan to half their use of virgin plastic, so that's raw plastic they have to create new, and that reduce the overall use of their plastic packaging by 14%. Now, part of the way that they say they're going to do this is to include, uh, to start introducing potentially refill stations. So that means you might buy a glass shampoo bottle at your local store, and that when you're done with that shampoo, you'll just take the empty bottle back to the store and refill it from a Unilever brand, uh, just refill it right there and then reuse it over and over again. They're also introducing some alternative materials like naked materials. These might be like shampoo bars. Uh, They're already starting some new uh, initiatives such as a Loop Initiative, which is refillable deodorant sticks. And they say they're going to start working with cities to try to incorporate how they can recycle some of their own plastic. Now, Paul, this is sort of a two-pronged strategy because it's not just because there's a new generation of consumers who care about companies that are ecological friendly people who are going to seek out brands that they know adhere with their own beliefs but also there is regulation coming already in the EU they've banned single use plastics by 2021 and the UK here is considering a draft law to tax packaging that does not include at least 30% recycled content so it's both sort of a marketing strategy both further they think this is good for society but also I think to head off some of these regulations they see coming down the line yeah, you make a good point there. Their hand uh, was forced 14 percent. How this doesn't
1: sound like that big of a deal, especially if they are relying. And this is key if they are relying on the consumers to do the heavy lifting in terms of bringing in these recycled glass
9: bottles. Yeah, I mean, and the recyclable and the the reusable bottles are just a part of this strategy. They're also thinking, like I said, of introducing shampoo bars. These are bars that look like soap, uh, but are actually shampoo uh, that you can use and come with a lot less packaging. We've seen this sort of trend with other things like trash bag uh, packaging that instead of wrapping it in cardboard, uh, you will just be trash bags by themselves. Uh, But if you think about 14%, For a company like Unilever, that they say use more than 720,000 tons of plastic every year, that's more than 100,000 tons of plastic, they say, that they will reduce by 2025. And they're one of several companies like Procter & Gamble and Coca-Cola who have also introduced these new pledges to try to reduce the number of plastics that they have because plastic packaging amounts for a huge amount of the plastic pollution that we see in the world today.
1: Yeah, absolutely hard to get rid of. And it might surprise some people how it's very difficult to recycle. You know, everyone who's putting it in those bins, a very small percentage actually gets recycled. How does gold for us in London exactly. appreciate that? And now we turn to some very serious protests in Iraq that we have been following for several weeks now. The Iraqi army now admits that it has been using excessive force. That is after yet another night of bloodshed there. We will have more on the protest shaking Iraq when we come back. The Iraqi military has admitted using excessive force against protesters, that's after overnight clashes in Baghdad left another 15 people dead. This brings the death toll after almost a week of violence to at least 110. More than 6,000 people have been injured. Uh, Backed by, of course, military forces have used live rounds against the crowd since the demonstrations began last Tuesday. John Defterios joins me. You know, in the face of all of this and, and even the police there and the military admitting that there was excessive force used, Iraqis remain defiant. What's at the heart of their grievances?
10: Okay, it's looking uh, nastier by the day, isn't it, Paula? That's for sure. Uh, this is not a very complex storyline. This is a complaint the Iraqis have had for years, and it's about basic services, water and power, but most importantly, uh, employment, which, by the way, the Iraqi government hasn't reported for the last two years. That's how dire the situation is. Uh, this came up during the elections a year ago it's what brought Prime Minister abdul Ahmadi into power, who promised to change things around. But this boils down to, and this is after many trips myself, Uh, into Iraq. It is corruption, uh, ranking 168 out of 175 countries by Transparency International. Uh, Paula, we're 16 years after the invasion of the United States in 2003 uh, to al-Saddam Hussein, and the Iraqis are now realizing there's no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This this is not a challenge of revenues. Uh, Iraq's expansion into oil has uh, their productions picked up fifty percent the last five years ago so at fifty five or sixty dollars a barrel they're making plenty of money and they have natural resources in abundance hundred fifty three billion barrels about nine percent of global reserves uh... but again the problem is getting it down to the average iraqi and that's the huge challenge today and that's where we see a, a wildfire of protests taking place and a very hard line by the government suggesting yes we would like to turn things around it's not that simple Uh, But the average Iraqi is saying that's not enough. That's not the answer that we were looking for when we went to the polls last year.
1: Yeah, and after so many years uh, going through what they have, 16 years, that has been one year uh, worse than the next, John. You can certainly imagine this. Um, In terms of these protests, we have seen some protests that kind of mirrored in places like Algeria and Sudan. Is there any indication of which way this is going to go?
10: You know, if you weren't hit in 2011 uh, by the Arab Spring, and these countries were not uh, there, clearly this is a delayed reaction because people do not see the economic development they were hoping for. So yes, in Algeria, yes, in Sudan. And the common theme here, Paul, is that they're very, very persistent. So I don't imagine this is going to go away overnight. And then you can point back to a place like Egypt, which had that uh, incredible overthrow here of uh, the government. And having a military government come into place. We saw protests in the last three weeks uh, yet again. So it is a huge challenge and a, a common theme here. Uh, a year ago, they were promised overhauls and economic policy. Now, Prime Minister Abadi is saying, look, there is no silver bullet, or in his words, no magic solution. So I think this is the biggest challenge. But if you put the context of Iraq over the last four decades, think about it. They fought an eight-year war with Iran. Uh, Over 1.5 million people on both sides were killed. The 1990s, you saw Saddam Hussein go into Kuwait, so that was a a lost decade. The invasion by the United States in 2003, and then often often overlooked in this uh, challenge for them was the ISIS confrontation, which has set them back even more. And when I went in April of last year, it struck me, and I thought, this is one of those countries that's never really going to realize the potential of its natural resources because it's not reaching all rungs of society. And that's exactly what we're seeing today.
1: And that's why sometimes they say in some of these countries it is actually a curse uh, to have the oil and not a help uh, at all. John, thanks so much for putting that into perspective. I mean, my gosh, more than four decades of this. Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Now, up next, President Trump has called it a phenomenal victory for U.S. farmers. Take note, U.S. farmers. We take a look at the Japanese deal that the president says has been overshadowed by a political storm. Welcome back. We have some breaking news just into CNN. A federal judge in New York has just handed a big defeat to President Trump. The judge has ruled that the president cannot stop his accountants from releasing eight years of tax records to Manhattan prosecutors looking into his business dealings. Mr. Trump has refused to release his tax returns in the past, but the judge rejected Trump's argument that he is immune from criminal investigations. Now, the president's lawyers are appealing today's ruling. Now, it's shaping up to be a busy day for U.S. President Donald Trump. He's juggling a second whistleblower a change of policy in Syria and, of course, a diplomatic clash with the U.K. It is a whirlwind that is threatening to sideline what Mr. Trump has called, in his words, a phenomenal victory for U.S. farmers, a trade deal with Japan. The White House has just added a signing ceremony this afternoon to the president's schedule. The deal cuts tariffs on some U.S. farm products on Japanese machine tools and crucially avoids higher duties on Japanese cars coming into the U.S. Joining me now is the head of the Japanese startup Attuned. The company uses what it calls predictive HR analytics. Getting that right, to help employers figure out what workers really want. Uh, this is Casey Wall, and he is the CEO of Attuned. Uh, we're going to get to Attuned in a second. Since we've got this whole issue of the trade mm. deal coming up, I and mean, you've lived in, in Japan for so long, um, how significant in this, you know, this would be headlining news uh, 20, 30 years ago mm. to have Japan even move a little bit on some of these trade mm. issues.
7: Absolutely. I think, like, the farmers have so much political clout in Japan. So, And when you're looking at these things and having a trade deal, it's it's just a big movement movement for them but this is what Japan is trying to do kind of within all of the global dynamics that are going on especially with the US and China like Japan's looking at these specific relationships and specific trade deals that we can make and make progress and then it's starting to happen
1: you know one area for Japan that hasn't gone very well though is its relations with South Korea which mm. tend to kind of take two steps forward and three back at mm. what point are we at now and how are they viewing that relationship which is still an important one to the United States the US doesn't want to see South Korea and Japan mm. at each other's throats I, it
7: seems like I think the U.S. is taking a step back, and you know, I, it, it kind of feels like. Because of what the U.S. is setting as the new kind of global norm about treating different people, where you have kind of a confrontational relationship, Japan's like, okay, now we can do this a little bit more, and South Korea can, you know, act like this a little bit more. It's a little bit quieter. You know, certainly we're seeing tourist numbers down, we're seeing trade partners down. Some of the big Japanese beer brands are not doing well in, you know, South Korea. But at some point, I think it's just going to go away, right? You have Hong Kong, you have all these other issues. But
1: I tell you, it's a bit worrying because, of course, it, it tends to bring up. The issue of nationalism in both mm.
7: countries. Mm. It, it does, but it's used as a tool, I think, more for kind of the government. So if we're looking at the individual person mm-hmm. on the street. Yes. It's not a big deal. Like You've always had something with South Korea and Japan going on for a long time. There, There's a lot of issues, and it has never, ever really come to a resolution. So can we win a few points on this, whether it's Japan side or South Korea side is what you're looking at? But in Japan, like the nationalism has been coming up for the last seven or eight years to a certain degree. But at this point in time, it's stable. Abe's been in power for quite a long time, and the government is stable, and everybody's very happy from an economic point of view that there's stability here. And the nationalism's not necessarily an aggressive one. Maybe it's a little bit more economic nationalism where we want to win some more deals gotcha. and, and be a bigger presence in the world
1: right? and, and perhaps not not as intimidating mm. I want to get to attuned okay please HR analytics fine what can it do the reviews on this to be uh, to be Frank have been really built this up as basically 55 questions and what it can tell you about your employees
7: at the end of it so it's a 10-minute assessment and you're uh-huh. gonna know
1: 10 what... minutes folks 10, ten minutes,
7: minutes. And it will show you your intrinsic motivators for work, so everybody's intrinsic motivators for work. So this is why managing people or hiring people or trying to retain people is so difficult because you think you know them, but until you spend quite a lot of time with them, whether it's weeks or whether it's months, you don't, and there's 1.7 million different combinations of intrinsic motivators that we found. So at the end, you're going to get your intrinsic motivator profile. So if you were to hire me, okay, you've met me, you've interviewed me, you think, hey, Casey's going to be fantastic at this job, but then you start managing me, oh, like these that I thought it was, they're very different. But you're gonna see with data, prove objectively and scientifically what is gonna motivate me.
1: Why doesn't that work in a 10-minute conversation?
7: Because what motivates you is down in your subconscious layer, so we probably won't even start with the same vocabulary. You know, if you think, okay, Casey's motivated by money or he's been in Japan a long time, maybe it's social relationships or security, you're gonna come in with your biases and we're gonna have a different language and it's not gonna be as scientific.
1: Uh, in terms of the companies using this, I mean, what success have you had in terms of the uptake on it and what kind of feedback have you been getting?
7: The feedback, like they love it. Like People love the data. It's something that was unseen, that is suddenly seen. And you can save so much time as a manager or as somebody going into your teams or your constructing team. So what's happening in Japan economically right now is all of the big companies, they still have so much market power. They have a lot of money, but they're not as competitive uh, from a productivity standpoint globally. So they're starting to roll in one on ones, for example. They want higher employee engagement, which is only 6% in Japan. So using this tool is absolutely fantastic they love the data the difficulty is okay how do you make this usable so okay casey is motivated by competition he's motivated by rationality if you're my manager what does that mean but now we're going to start delivering a very bite-sized kind of nudge pieces so you're coming to work it's going to be on your on your phone. Hey, Casey, I'm meeting Casey today. I should ask him these questions. And that's just going to get him excited.
1: It's interesting, uh, all of that, you say, because it really is in the measurable results afterwards. Do you have any data on that?
7: We do. We have reduced turnover for a different company. We've increased the communication between employees and managers. There's one company whose name I can't divulge, (laughs) but it is a very large Japanese company that was involved in scandals before. And that's because there's a gap between communications. Uh, between managers and teams, and now that's starting to be right. much better.
1: Casey, I have to leave it there. We'll continue to follow, of course, your company, but also, of course, what's going on with Japan with this all important trade deal today. Uh, I want to thank Casey Wall, and that's it for First Move. Thanks for watching. I'm Paula Newton. Connect the World with Becky Anderson starts right after the break. I want you to have a look at those numbers, though. In the meantime, losses not as bad as they could have been, but still a losing day here on the markets.
0: When you work, you work next level